This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. Happy 2016 to everybody. Yay! Hooray! We're already starting the year off strong with some new patrons, so thanks for that. That's really a great way to kick off the new year. If you're a fan of our show and want to support this podcast, then please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Yeah. So this holiday season, Sabrina and I went to... Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Macau, and we saw some dinosaur museums and dinosaur attractions that we'll be talking about in the coming months. We've posted a couple pictures here and there on Twitter and our Patreon feed if you want to check it out. There's some really great places to go in all three of those cities. There is a lot of news to cover, so we're not going to cover everything that happened in the last few weeks today, but there's quite a bit of cool stuff, so... And as usual, Garrett went down some rabbit holes. <laughs> yeah, I've spent like at least 20 hours on this week's news. There was a lot of stuff. So the first one I want to talk about is a new discovery. And this was published in the journal PLOS One by Akinobu Watanabe and others. And the article is titled Vertebral Pneumaticity in the Ornithomimosaur Archaeoornithomimus, revealed by computed tomography imaging and reappraisal of axial pneumaticity in Ornithomimosauria. Mouthful. Yeah, that gives you a clue as to a couple of the rabbit holes I went down. But the researchers were working on a key question, which is basically when did dinosaurs or modern birds develop their quote unquote hollow bones and why? So just like when we were talking about warm versus cold-blooded, we use the scientific terms endotherm and ectotherm because warm and cold-blooded really aren't scientifically accurate. Here I'm going to use the term pneumaticity to mean airspace and bones as well as the air sacs that are related to it. So humans actually have pneumaticity. We don't really think about it much, but a lot of animals actually do in their skulls. So specifically in the nasal passages, there are air gaps where air flows through them. But it turns out that dinosaurs, both extinct and living as modern birds, are some of the only animals to have pneumaticity in any of the other bones in their body. So like I said, the big question is when did they develop it? 
because the reason why is actually pretty simple. It's almost certainly for efficiency. So the use of these air sacs that they have that goes along with hollow bones is that it allows their lungs to bring in oxygen nearly constantly. And there's this really good YouTube video that we'll post on our blog that explains it really well. But basically, they don't have a diaphragm pumping air into and out of their lungs like we do, where you take a big breath in and then your lungs transmit the oxygen into your bloodstream and then you breathe out the carbon dioxide and then you breathe in more fresh air. Instead, what they do is they expand and contract their ribs like a bellows and they have a series of air sacs that are attached to their lungs. And the easiest way to describe an air sac is like a really simple bag that's attached to the lungs. They don't exchange oxygen with the bloodstream the way lungs do. They just hold on to the air temporarily, either before or after it's exchanged in the lungs. And it allows the body to manage air more efficiently. So when they exhale, they're actually moving fresh air from one of their air sacs into their lungs and that way they have what they call a, a unidirectional flow of air it always goes through the same path whereas humans we breathe in and out through the same pipe and it just goes back and forth back and forth they can actually breathe in and then it goes through a series of air sacs and lungs and then back out but it's kind of more constant it's really hard to explain <laughs> through words the youtube video does a better job but Suffice it to say, birds have these awesome air sacs and they have the most efficient lungs of any animal. So it's really interesting to figure out when they evolved them and what they might have evolved it for, because most likely they evolved it before flight, but you know, no one's really ever proven when it happened. So even though we know it's more efficient and obviously helps birds fly due to the large amounts of oxygen that birds need, we don't know what selective pressure drove dinosaurs to evolve their fancy respiratory system. So the researchers focused on CT scans that they took of an Archaeoornithomimus, but they also looked at some specimens of Dinochirus, Gallimimus, Ornithomimus, and many other dinosaurs via others' research papers. So they found good evidence for air sacs in their Archaeoornithomimus and Watanabe added, quote, this means that at least their air sacs were already present in Archaeoornithomimus and presumably in the common ancestor of ornithomimosaurs and birds, which would have been over 150 million years ago, end quote. The authors point to a high degree of individual variation and asymmetry from pneumaticity in modern birds, so they would like to study more individuals to get a more representative sample and they're encouraging their fellow paleontologists to use CT imaging on their vertebrae so that more of them can be characterized for pneumaticity. Basically, these air sacs press up against different bones within the bird or dinosaur, and some of those are vertebrae, also some of the hip bone area, and depending on the pneumaticity of the bone, meaning those spaces that are left for the air sacs, you can tell if they had the air sacs or maybe start to guess where they were or how many they had. Modern birds typically have nine, apparently. So that's my first foray into pneumaticity. <laughs> <laughs> there have been a few other papers published on it, and I'm sure there'll be more. <laughs> well done. <laughs> 
on a lighter note, this piece of news is thanks to Chris, who shared this story with us via Twitter. In December, there was a landslide at the Jurassic Cliffs at Charmouth in Dorset. And Dorset's a county in England on the English Channel coast. About 1,000 tons of cliff, or 320 feet, fell down the week before Christmas, and 200 fossil hunters went to the beach to collect fossil souvenirs. Most of the fossils were of ammonites, uh, but some of the ammonites were five or six inches. According to Tony Gill, who runs the Charmouth Fossil Shop, it's one of the biggest cliff falls, and normally it takes many years to have that much of the cliff erode, which is probably why so many fossil hunters were excited. Hmm. Too bad we couldn't get there. Next in the news is another article published in the journal PLOS One. This one's titled, A New Sailbacked Styra Costernin from the Early Cretaceous of Morella, Spain. And it was written by Jose Miguel Gasuya and Fernando Escaso, as well as others. It's about a discovery in the Mas de la Pareta Quarry in Morea in the Castellón province on the east coast of Spain. They named the new dinosaur Moreadon Beltrani. And most people probably pronounce it Morelodon because it's with two L's, but I'm assuming it's Morea because of how Spanish does two L's as a Y sound. Anyway, so Moreadon is from the Morea formation, and that's obviously where it got its name. And the Odon means tooth. And then the species name is in recognition of Victor Beltran, who has contributed a lot of research to paleontology in the area. So they believe that it is more closely related to some European taxa, including Iguanodon, than to other species that were found on the Iberian Peninsula. And they're estimating they didn't find a, a lot of bones that would really tell you about what it looked like, but they're guessing it probably looks something more or less like an iguanodon. So the bones that they did find were teeth, vertebrae, ribs, parts of the pelvis, the right tibia, and most interestingly, tall neural spines. These tall neural spines mean that it either had a sail or a hump on its back. We've talked about what sails or humps could be used for in earlier episodes, but we still really have no idea what they looked like or what they were you know, actually used for, just a lot of theories. One interesting hypothesis that Discovery News listed this time was the possibility that it was used for defense in a way. So if you think of it kind of like a stegosaurus's spikes, if a dinosaur was to bite at the spine of another dinosaur, it would be missing all the vital organs and possibly come away, you know, more or less unscathed, at least good enough to heal and maybe escape without losing a chunk of important body parts. <laughs> so I hadn't thought of that before. And I mean, even Stegosaurus, even though it had spikes, it would have probably had some blood flow going through it. So it wouldn't have been great to get bitten there, but just better than getting bitten the lung or something. <laughs> so either way, um, they keep finding more and more of these dinosaurs with sails or humps. And it's, becoming more and more clear that it must have posed some big advantage for dinosaurs because so many of these different groups evolved the same trait, but they evolved them independently. So there must have been something to these humps or sails, whether it was storing nutrients because it was difficult to find food or if it was 
an important defense mechanism or an important way to see differences between groups of dinosaurs or I don't know what else it could have been, but there's a lot of possibilities. It also shows that there's even more diversity in the Iguanodontia clad or infraorder, depending on who you listen to, that was already quite diverse on the Iberian Peninsula. So it'll be interesting to see if we can find some more specimens, maybe get some more insight into why they might have had these humps or sails or whatever they were, and what other dinosaurs might have had them. Yeah. Next in the news, I effing love science. Not going to say the full name of that site here since we advertise ourselves as a clean show. (laughs) Anyway, they shared a post about a beautiful dino pet. And it's a mini aquarium shaped like a small sauropod, and it's full of bioluminescent organisms known as dinoflagellates. And these organisms glow at night, and we actually used to see them sometimes when we lived in Santa Barbara. We went to school there, and I think it happened at least twice. You could uh, see the ocean glowing at night certain times of the year. Yeah, and, and I know it's around in... Puerto Rico in some bay. It happens all the time. There are a few places where there's this bioluminescent that lights up at night. Super cool. In the video, the dino pet's really pretty. Plus, it's shaped like a sauropod, so it's also pretty cute. Yeah, I couldn't quite tell how big it was, but it looks like a very a pretty small little... I think it could fit in your hand. Yeah, it looks like just a little glass sculpture that's hollow and full of organisms. And I, I'm wondering how long they would survive in there. Because it doesn't look like there's anywhere to feed them. or They photosynthesize during the day. I think they only need light. Maybe carbon dioxide. Maybe it's only a half full or partially full sauropod of water. Maybe there's we'll, a little brine shrimp in there. Maybe we'll have to get one and see. <laughs> okay. I think that's the answer. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> so next in the news is a new dinosaur that you might be able to see in a museum if you're listening to us from Germany or somewhere nearby. There's a dinosaur named Tristan, and it's a T-Rex. It just arrived in the Museum for Naturkund in Berlin, Germany. And it started four years ago when a juvenile T-Rex was uncovered in Montana in the U.S., and it has the most complete Tyrannosaurus rex skull to date. It's 98%, and it includes all of its teeth. It was recently sold to Niels Nielsen, a businessman from Denmark, currently living in London. And when he bought it, he named it Tristan after his son. Oh. (laughs) Originally, he wanted it to go on display in London. And he said that he always wanted to put it in a museum because he didn't really want to have it in his house because it's huge and all that kind of stuff. But the Natural History Museum in London had just installed a large stegosaurus and they also said that they didn't like dealing with private collectors and Nielsen said something that I found really interesting quote it seems still to be unusual in paleontology for private owners to lend to museums while in the arts it is very common end quote so that was a really good point because there's a bit of a controversy over whether people should have private collections of fossils or if it should all be in museums. But it seems like with art, there isn't the same controversy. So you always see, if you go to an art museum, half the time the thing says on loan from and then somebody's name. So 
If you count paleo art, we covered that one story of the hairdresser from Chicago. Before he sold his paleo art collection, he loaned it to some museums. Yeah, that's true. But as far as actual fossils go. True. I guess just not as common yet. But anyway, it didn't take him long to find a museum that would take it. His second choice was the Museum for Naturkunde in Berlin. And I'm probably pronouncing that horribly wrong. Sorry if you speak German. And it will be there for at least three years. It went up on display in the museum just a couple weeks ago. But the skull isn't mounted on the body. It's actually in a separate case next to the skeleton because it's so heavy. So they 3D printed a much lighter skull and that's what's ended up being mounted on the body as a side note i was watching this cool video of those ct scans of the vertebrae and it now makes perfect sense to me the combination of ct scanning and 3d printing because ct scanning you scan them layer by layer as you go across it and that's exactly how 3d printing works the natural history museum in berlin also has a huge mounted brachiosaurus And it has the beautiful Archaeopteryx lithographica that we've talked about before that I really want to see. They are currently renovating the building to add more exhibition space and improve the collection rooms to better preserve their specimens. They're not really sure when all that's going to be finished, (laughs) but it doesn't affect this display. The price for the fossil wasn't disclosed since it was sold privately but they're guessing that it was probably on the order of about $10 million since it's about what Sue sold for. One other quote-unquote Tyrannosaurus news item, if you were reading the news, you might have seen that Nicolas Cage bought a quote-unquote Tyrannosaurus Batar skull in 2007, And it's really a Tarbosaurus. Everyone's calling it a Tyrannosaurus. And there are some scientists that consider Tarbosaurus to be a synonym for Tyrannosaurus. But we always call it Tarbosaurus. More scientists are calling it that right now. So that's where we're going with. Obviously, it doesn't grab the same headlines. So no one knows what a Tarbosaurus is except everyone listening to this podcast. (laughs) They do both start with T. They do. And they're both, they're very closely related, if not even the same genus. Anyway, he reportedly paid a little over a quarter million U.S. dollars for the skull at the I Am Shade Gallery in Beverly Hills and apparently got it by outbidding Leonardo DiCaprio, which is just kind of a fun aside since I love Leo. It's it's about a 65% complete skull. And that's actually pretty good, even though the one we just talked about was 98% complete. And it has most, if not all, of its teeth, and they're in pretty good condition. So it, it is really cool looking. But the problem is the fossil was apparently dug up in Mongolia, then sent to Gainesville, Florida, auctioned in Manhattan, and then somehow ended up with Nicolas Cage. So we've mentioned before that China and Mongolia don't generally allow fossils to leave the country legally. So smuggling is a pretty big problem. And Tarbosaurus pretty much only comes from Mongolia. So if you're buying a Tarbosaurus, you're probably buying something illegal. But it turns out the I Am Shade Gallery apparently sold another Tarbosaurus fossil for over a million dollars a few years ago. And this was like a full skeleton, not just a skull. And Eric Procopy spent three months in jail when he admitted to importing it along with two oviraptors and a sorolophus to his house in Gainesville, Florida. 
since Eric is now apparently helping authorities investigate fossils in the black market, and this one went through his hometown, I wonder if he helped track this one down and possibly restored it and imported it himself. I don't know. <laughs> Seems like quite a coincidence. It's interesting how little responsibility auction houses have to take for stolen goods, though. This is another rabbit hole I went down. Apparently, they rarely give refunds in cases like these, and Sotheby's was even caught on camera admitting to ignoring export laws and dealing in stolen goods, even though it's mostly art that is, you know, all that Nazi-era stuff and everything. Lots of things have been stolen and are still being sold around. But I guess what ends up happening is... Like in this case, Nicolas Cage was told, hey, that skull was stolen, and he got a notice of forfeiture from the government, and it basically says, whoa, that was stolen. We're going to take it and give it back to who originally owned it before it was stolen, in this case, Mongolia. And that's really the best case scenario, because the only other thing that can happen is they do that, and then they also say, we're also charging you with possession of stolen property and then you go to jail or have to pay a whole bunch of money or something. So I guess this happens all the time. It's kind of terrible. You'd think that an auction house, if you're dealing with a quarter million dollar piece of art or anything at all, you'd do a little research to see if maybe it was stolen. Like, hey, that fossil only exists in a place that doesn't allow it to be exported. <laughs> maybe we should check first. But uh, I guess they're off the hook for some reason. Maybe I'm oversimplifying it. Me either. After the whole uh, Sue skeleton thing going through Sotheby's, I also just have a little bit of a bias against them. <laughs> In very different news, this story is not exactly dinosaur related. It's actually about plesiosaurs. And we debated whether or not to include it because I know Dino is just about dinosaurs, but Chris from Twitter shared the, this link, and it was very interesting, and we like to hear from our listeners. Um, at some point, if Final Dino ever gets bigger and we're able to expand our podcast, we'd love to get a show going that can cover animals that lived around the same time as dinosaurs but weren't dinosaurs, such as plesiosaurs, because they're really fascinating too. But for now, we'll just make exceptions here and there with new stories. So scientists have made computer simulations to figure out how plesiosaurs move through water, and it turns out that they move like penguins, steering with their back limbs and using their front limbs as paddles. And until now, no one really knew how a plesiosaur moved. A plesiosaur has wing-like flippers, so there were debates that it used all four limbs to row, or maybe they moved similar to penguins and turtles, or some combination of both. And these debates have gone on for a while, since plesiosaur was first discovered in 1821 by Mary Onning, a British fossil hunter. The paper, published in PLOS One, says that based on the, a computer model of a nearly complete, but small, 3-meter-long plesiosaur skeleton, plesiosaurs use their forelimbs for thrusting and their hind limbs for steering, and also maybe to help them spin around to catch their prey. And if you want to learn more about plesiosaurs, our... Patron Luke pointed out that Coursera has some great-looking new dinosaur classes and dinosaur-era classes, and one of them is called Paleontology Ancient Marine Reptiles. That's going to be coming out in February. They also have Paleontology Theropod Dinosaurs and the Origin of Birds, 
which comes out on January 25th, and Paleontology Early Vertebrate Evolution coming out in March. We've mentioned Coursera a few times on our show, mostly about the course Dino 101 by Dr. Philip Curry from the University of Alberta. And Garrett and I took his course maybe about a year before we launched our podcast. And then, of course, we had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Curry in an interview in episode four. And it's a really great introductory course. It's free and online, but it's definitely a college-level course. And it'll give you all of the basics that you need to know about dinosaurs. And it goes through span of an entire semester. If you want, I believe you can pay to get actual credit for it in your college. You can get some kind of certificate. I'm not sure exactly. It probably depends on your college if you can get credit for it or not. Probably. But you also have the option to just take it for fun. Yeah, that's what we did. Yeah. Yeah, that one actually just became available again starting in the beginning of January here, and it's available till Cinco de Mayo, or May 5th, 2016. Yeah, so if you have a chance, you should sign up. So Coursera is a platform that offers many free online courses. They're called Massive Open Online Courses, or MOOCs. (laughs) And this allows anyone with an internet connection to basically educate themselves in whatever they want. These MOOCs have gotten more and more popular over the years, so there's a lot of universities participating now, and all kinds of different classes in different areas. Yeah, so those four we just mentioned are from the University of Alberta. But the American Museum of Natural History also has three classes coming out. Two of them that sound particularly interesting are Evolution, a course for educators. And it's focused on integrating evolution into classrooms. So kind of how to teach evolution to students. And then another one called The Dynamic Earth, a course for educators. And I just signed up for that one (laughs) because it sounds interesting. And it's an overview of the history of the Earth and geologic timescales, as well as an exploration on how scientists, quote, read the rocks. So that sounds fun, even though it's supposed to be geared towards teaching teachers how to teach it to students. I still want to take it. Yeah, so Coursera is pretty cool. Most of the classes are free, but I think some of them you do have to pay for. I'm not sure. You can pay for it, like Udacity is a platform similar to Coursera, and they offer what they call nano degrees. So if you wanted to get an official degree or certificate from them, Mm. then you pay for that. Okay. Yeah, I was wondering, because they talk about how they have tuition reimbursement potentially or things like that. Oh, then they must have something similar. Yeah. Cool. So definitely check that out. If you haven't taken the Dino 101 class, it's super awesome. It's basically a series of videos and then some interactive things that you click on. And it, it's a really good lesson on the basics of dinosaur paleontology. And it's interactive and fun. And speaking of fun, thank you to Cole for pointing this one out to us. Last year, around the same time that Jurassic World came out on Blu-ray, The Land Before Time and We're Back, A Dinosaur Story were released on Blu-ray. And in case you don't remember these movies, Land Before Time came out in 1988 and we're back a dinosaur story came out in 93 interestingly same year as jurassic park (laughs) that's true (laughs) and they're both animated although personally i'm a bigger fan of land before time because of littlefoot probably (laughs) but they're both really entertaining and we've just ordered our own copies so we'll let you know 
when we get them and watch them if there's any special features. Just a quick note. I somehow missed this game when it came out, probably because I don't have a Wii U. But there's a game that came out last year, 2015, called Yoshi's Woolly World. And the title on Engadget says it's, quote, the video game equivalent of a hug, (laughs) (laughs) which I love. If you're like me, you probably love Yoshi because he's sort of a dinosaur. He's not. He's kind of like a dinosaur frog thing. I don't know what he's supposed to be. But it might have been the first anthropomorphic dinosaur that I ever encountered. So I loved Yoshi. They also say on Engadget that this Yoshi's Woolly World game is like Yoshi's Island meets Kirby's Epic Yarn. So if you've played either of those games, you might kind of have an idea about it. It's basically a platformer where all the characters are made out of yarn and they have yarn abilities like yarn ball attacks, but it it looks adorable. It looks like an Etsy made game or something because everything looks like it's crocheted and it's super cool. So it's all warm and fuzzy. Yeah, (laughs) it looks really nice. So if you have a Wii U, I I know almost no one that has a Wii U, but if you have one, you might want to check out this game. I don't think it's on any other platform. That's too bad. Yeah, I just had to mention it because I like Yoshi a lot. And speaking of 2015, Discovery wrote about the 10 best dinosaurs discovered in 2015. Although I have to say the first one that they mentioned is Anzi Wiley, the quote-unquote chicken from hell, and that one was discovered in 2014. We wrote about it in our Top 10 Dinosaurs of 2014 book that we released last year. And on a side note, we'll be working on getting a new book out soon about the Top Dinosaurs of 2015. But anyway, other dinosaurs that made Discovery's list, you may remember us talking about them in some of our episodes last year, since we covered probably all of them in our news. Almost all, if not all. Yeah. So they include Ichi, which had bat-like wings, Regulaceratops, Peter Husai, a horned dinosaur with the nickname Hellboy, there's the Superduck, which had a head crest. And Genyuan Long Suni, a five-foot-long relative of Velociraptor that's described as the quote-unquote poodle from hell. <laughs> got an, a hell theme going on, I guess. <laughs> and something about dinosaurs makes people think of hell. I don't know what it is. Hell or, in Yoshi's case, a warm hug. I don't know. <laughs> Mixed signals. <laughs> that's true. And the final rabbit hole that I went down this week was all about coins or numismatics. T-Rex is now going to be on a $20 silver Canadian coin. And if you're wondering, 20 Canadian dollars is equivalent almost exactly to 20 Australian dollars or just under $14.50 in America or 10 British pounds. So rabbit hole number one. Yeah, (laughs) that was just a calculation. That's not even the the top of the rabbit hole. My mistake. (laughs) (laughs) So they can be ordered through the Royal Canadian Mint with no taxes and free shipping in both Canada and the U.S. So we might have ordered a couple, possibly to be used as in contests in the future. And they're going to mint 300,000 of them. They only let you order five of them. But it turns out this isn't the first time that Canada has put a dinosaur on a coin, and it's not even close to the first time. As recently as 2014, they made a commemorative $20 coin for the discovery of Xenoceratops. And then last year in 2015, 
the Perth Mint in Australia released a set of five colored silver dinosaur coins. This is really getting into the rabbit hole. <laughs> but they cost 90 Australian dollars or about 65 American or Canadian dollars a piece. And they only have a face value of $1, which is crazy. Since the Canadian one had a face value of $20 and it cost $20. Anyway, I guess no one's really going to use them anyway. They're not really for circulation, but... They only made 5,000 of each of these, so they're a lot more rare. There was the possibility of a dinosaur appearing on the new U.S. National Park Service coin, but they went with John Muir, Teddy Roosevelt, and Yosemite National Park's Half Dome, and then the National Park Service logo instead. Boo. Yeah, it's a little bit weak. <laughs> but John Muir was pretty awesome, so can't hate it too much. And the, the dinosaur that they were going to put on it was just like a simple dinosaur skeleton in a museum rather than like this awesome roaring T-Rex that Canada put on their coin. Hmm. Canada seems to just go put anything on a coin. They got Bugs Bunny and NASCAR and Superman, all sorts of stuff. So if you're into coin collecting, you might want to order one of those coins. It's only $14.50 American dollars, free shipping and no tax. And that's it for the news for this week. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Now on to the dinosaur of the day, Sorophaganax. So the name Sorophaganax means lizard eater. Or, according to at least one other source, lizard-eating master. 
John Willis Stovall found large theropod bones in 1931 and 1932 in Oklahoma, and in 1942, he named them Saurophagus Maximus, which means eater of saurians. He wrote that in an article, but the article did not contain a description, so the name is considered Nomen Nudum. Stowell did provide a description in 1950, but the name Saurophagus had already been used actually in 1831. William Swainson named a tyrant flycatcher Saurophagus, and this flycatcher actually did eat lizards. And for those who don't know, flycatchers are birds. The article where Stowell had named Saurophagus, but unofficially, is in an article by Grace Ernestine Ray. What happened is... Park Collins and Truman Tucker, who were cattlemen, found the bones in Oklahoma, and they told John Stovall about their discovery. So Stovall applied for the Works Progress Administration, which gave work to unskilled laborers during the Great Depression. They ended up excavating the bones in May of 1935 to 1938, and the workers who were excavating had to live in the same county as the work they were doing. But Kimmerin County, Oklahoma, where they were, did not have many paleontologists or fossil preparers, so it was mostly up to local ranchers and farmhands. Many of the bones consequently were accidentally destroyed, and there's not much field data that was kept. Also, the laborers didn't always know what was bone and what was rock. So the program was good to give people work, but it wasn't great when it came to excavating dinosaurs. Grace Ray ended up visiting the site when Stovall found the Saurophagus Maximus bones, which is why it hadn't yet been scientifically named. Grace Ray came a little bit too early. And between that and the name Saurophagus already being used, Saurophaganax didn't have a real name until 1995. Here's a little snippet from Grace Ray's article. Quote, Despite his strength and power and his technique in terrorizing the enemy, Saurophagus would never have been able to pass the medical test of a military draft board, neither would Mrs. Saurophagus have qualified as a perfect 36. They were hopelessly overweight, and it is improbable that any amount of dieting would have remedied the situation. Overactive glands may account for their stupendous size, as in the case of other dinosaurs. <laughs> I don't know why the dinosaurs would care about their weight, but <laughs> there you have it. <laughs> In 1987, a lectotype, which is a bone used to identify remains, was established, and this was based on a tibia. So the paleontologist Daniel Chur ended up naming the new genus Saurophaganax in 1995. He did not treat this name change, though, as renaming. So instead of using the 1987 lectotype, he ended up using a vertebra as a holotype. And he added the annex, Greek suffix, which means ruler, to the Saurophagus name. And again, he named the, a different specimen as the type specimen. So again, Saurophaganax is not a renaming of Saurophagus, though Saurophagus material has mostly been referred to as Saurophaganax maximus, uh, including disarticulated bones of at least four individuals. There are some scientists who consider Saurophaganax a species of Allosaurus. They call him Allosaurus maximus instead. And this theory came up soon after Saurophaganax was named, that it was actually a large species of Allosaurus. This is based on all the known Saurophaganax bones except for vertebrae that were similar to previously discovered Allosaurus bones. Saurophaganax has been estimated to be 34 to 43 feet or 10.5 to 13 meters long and weigh around 3 tons. Research shows that Allosaurus died young before being full grown, so being Saurophaganax size would have been rare. It's not clear if the vertebrae are the only differences between Saurophaganax and Allosaurus. 
Saurophaganax was large for an allosaurid, bigger than Torvosaurus and Allosaurus, but a rare find, again, in the Morrison Formation, especially compared to Allosaurus. The Morrison Formation is known for having many Allosaurus bones, so there's not much known about Saurophaganax's behavior. Not many fossils have been found, which supports the theory, well, maybe it's just a larger Allosaurus, but that could mean that we just haven't found more bones yet. Maybe Saurophaganax died in ways that weren't conducive to fossilization. Saurophaganax may have been a top predator because of its large size, but it would not have been as numerous as smaller dinosaurs, and this is based on there wouldn't have been enough food to sustain a large population of very large predators. Also, having larger bodies makes it less likely for us to see complete specimens because it would have been harder to have buried them and protected them from scavengers. To help distinguish Saurophaganax from Allosaurus, it'd be good to find a juvenile Saurophaganax at some point. A partial skeleton has been found in New Mexico, which may help to clear up if Saurophaganax is its own genus or a species of Allosaurus. Saurophaganax had long, sharp teeth and a strong neck. Because of its size, it may have been slow and more likely to scavenge than hunt. It may have waited for other theropods to take down prey and then swooped in to take the meat since the theropods wouldn't have been big enough to challenge Saurophaganax. Where it lived in the Morrison Formation was semi-arid with distinct wet and dry seasons with lakes and floodplains, and the Morrison Formation was the center of the bone wars between Marsh and Cope in 1877. Other dinosaurs in the area included Barosaurus, Camarasaurus, Diplodocus, potential prey such as Camptosaurus, Dryosaurus, Stegosaurus, and Othnilosaurus. Predators included Torvosaurus, Ceratosaurus, Marshosaurus, Stokosaurus, Ornitholestes, and Allosaurus. Again, Allosaurus, which we've covered in a previous episode, is about 70-75% to 75% of the theropods in this area that we found. You can see a Saurophaganic skeleton in the Sam Noble Oklahoma Museum of Natural History. Since Allosaurus seems to be its closest relative, missing Saurophaganic's elements are based on Allosaurus parts and reconstructions, but scaled up. An Oklahoma state fossil is Saurophaganic. Nice. I like it when state fossils are dinosaurs and not just the state dinosaur is a dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> Saurophaganix is an allosaurid, and we've talked about allosauridia in episodes 54 with Beckel Spinex and episode 25 with Allosaurus. And allosaurids are from the Morrison Formation. Allosauridae is a family of medium to large carnivorous theropods, and they include Saurophaganix, Allosaurus, and Impentarius, which has been reassigned as an allosaurus species. Charles Marsh named this family in 1878, and Allosaurids were successful hunters, but it's unclear how many genera are in the family. Many Carnosaurs are also somewhat related to Allosaurus. And our fun fact of the day is that the impact at Chicxulub that probably wiped out the dinosaurs had an estimated energy equivalent to 240,000 gigatons of TMT, which is on the order of 10 billion times the size of the bomb dropped on Hiroshima during World War II, which is crazy. That's a lot of power. I could see how it may have wiped out the dinosaurs. Yeah, and there's all that stuff about it. Probably kicked up enough particulate to wipe out the sun for a couple of years, knock out photosynthesis and all that kind of crazy stuff. Yeesh. Yeah. And on that note, <laughs> that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. If you like what you hear, please consider contributing to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Yeah, it can give you a chance to connect with us 
more directly because we have Patreon only posts where we talk about what dinosaurs are coming up and things like that. So, And we're always happy to respond to messages. Yeah. Thanks for listening and until next time. Good day.